Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. So let's take a topic here that um, it's delicate. There's no question about it. This is one of those topics that's, you know, you tiptoe around a little bit. And let's just dive right in, won't we? Here's why. Um, during a campaign-ish rally that was going on in the Montreal area uh, on uh, the other day, there was a woman who was shouting questions at Prime Minister Justin Trudeau asking him when and how his government was government was going to repay Quebec for the costs incurred in what has been described as an influx in illegal immigrants. Those were her words, illegal immigrants uh, that were coming across from the U.S. border. Uh, because keep in mind, the Quebec government has, and the Ontario government have been after Ottawa to pay the costs of social services and other things involved with, whether you want to call them illegal immigrants or irregular migrants, who have crossed into Canada. Now, according to uh, Quebec, the costs have reached $146 million so far. They, she, this woman was wanting to know what was Canada going to do about it? When was his government going to recompense Quebec for these costs? Well, the Prime Minister responded to the woman by accusing her of intolerance and racism for her views on illegal immigrants and saying her sentiments were not welcome in this country. They were not part of the Canadian way. Which raises, I think, an interesting question. Is it allowed to question, to have opinions, to have thoughts, to have concerns, to have input on immigration? Or is even holding a view that you may question some part of our immigration policy by definition racist? Uh, Lisa Ravery is a longtime editor and journalist. She wrote a piece in the Montreal Gazette just the other day under the headline, It's Not Racist to Question Multiculturalism in Canada. Lise joins us now. Lise, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. So let's go through a couple points here one by one, but just to sort of set this thing up and see where you come from on this. Mm-hmm. Baseline right off the bat, is it racist to question immigration in this country? No, of course not. Uh, it's a perfectly... Uh, good topic to discuss, like uh, any other topics that touch Canadians in their daily lives. And to be honest, yeah, you know, you, you you can't discount the fact that it's pretty much one of the top topics in many places around the world today. So I don't see why it should be forbidden here to discuss it. It's how you discuss it, um, but not the fact that you do. Okay. Uh, so is it then, clear. let me go to the next step then. Is it racist to or hateful to question the cost of immigration? Because some would say, look, the cost, these are real people. Uh, the cost is the cost, whatever we have to pay. Is it, is it racist or hateful to question what it's costing to bring people or allow people to come into the country? No, I don't believe it is. Not not in this particular instance where, uh, you know, it's been discussed uh, in Ontario. I think Ontario is waiting for, what, asking for $200 million. Uh, Manitoba is looking for some money, and so is Quebec, because immigration is a federal jurisdiction. But because of, you know, Canada being taken by surprise by uh, uh, asylum seekers, um you know why should we why should the provinces be left on their own to pay for it as long as it stays on that kind of level i don't see what is racist or intolerant about it and as you were saying you know is it should we talk about illegal immigrants and the right word is the right words are asylum seekers okay that was the next one i was going to ask is it racist to refer to someone as an illegal alien 
Well, yeah, I, I don't think it's racist. I just, I just think it's, it's, it's not. You know, nobody is illegal. This is something that I agree with with people on the left. Uh, to say that a person, a human being, is illegal, to me, is very distasteful. There's, and things should be called what they are. And the people who have crossed illegally, and you can say that because there are signs uh, down on the border that says it is illegal to cross here. Mm-hmm. Well, so. and you know what's interesting about this is this, this part of why this I think is a challenge for some people is that the language seems to have changed very quickly because I went and was looking yesterday and it was only back in, well, Bill Clinton was still president when he was quoted, he was talking in his state of the union address. He talked about the huge number of illegal aliens was his words. And, and Barack Obama talked about illegal crossings. Now it seems to have changed. This I think has confused some people about what is the right words because words do change, but this, that was used very commonly in the past. Well, in, in the United States, illegal alien is, is, is a recognized, uh, saying. It's, it's, it's been used for just about since the United States existence. Um, here in Canada, we don't have that officially. We don't use that. It's nowhere in our, uh, you know, laws or where in the states you'll find it in our official documents. But you're right. You know, I mean, words do matter because uh, if you say, which is the correct uh, calling of the um, asylum seekers, uh, it's very different. It creates a very different image in people's minds than uh, illegal alien. Lise Ravery is a journalist. She wrote a piece in the Montreal Gazette. It's not racist to question multiculturalism in Canada. And Lise, I want to read you a line from what you wrote, because I find this very interesting. Here, here, and this is quoting you. I don't know how often people quote you back to you, but we'll <laughs> do it anyway. Me, rarely. <laughs> here it is. It seems that public conversations about immigration, diversity, and especially multiculturalism are verboten in Canada to mention the advantages of integration on any tone, in any manner, Smacks of colonialism, it seems. Uh, you, it sounds like you believe that's where we are, though, that somehow we've reached a point where publicly, anyway, in a public setting, we're really not supposed to talk about this. Well, I mean, I mean to begin with, uh, Prime Minister is making some of us feel that it's something that shouldn't be discussed, uh, that it's, it's a settled, it's a done deal, it's in the Constitution, where, you know, multiculturalism is, is our, our way. Uh, but, you know, multiculturalism, all it is, really, is, 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 uh, is a doctrine. It's no more, no less than the doctrine. It's, I mean, it's not the same thing as multi-ethnic. If you say, oh, multi-ethnic neighborhood, you're stating a fact. But when you say Canada is multicultural, then you're talking about a doctrine. And the doctrine is that, as opposed to countries that promote integration of new Canadians, multiculturalism promotes that people keep uh, their culture that they came over with. Well, what the other thing is that confuses me about this whole discussion that we're having right now is I don't see that multiculturalism and immigration are synonymous. Immigration is people getting here. Multiculturalism is once you're here, you are permitted to keep your background, your religion, your culture. But I don't know that the two equal each other, that because we have multiculturalism, that we should have nothing determining who comes into the country. And and I think we've confused those two things. We do. I mean, we confuse a lot of things. These are are complex issues. Uh, Let's not, you know, kid ourselves. 
And we had a guy down south, you know, we opened the newspapers, and what he says about immigration, I mean, everything is so, you know, black and white. It's not. It's, it, it is far from it. And uh, the fact that we are talking about it in Canada, and we are talking about it at a level um, that is, in my view, far superior to, to what you're hearing on the other side of the border, I mean, says a lot about us. But I sense that, you know, as long as politicians and, 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 and prime ministers in particular go around making people feel that they shouldn't be talking about this is the best way one day to uh, allow for the, the arrival, the creation of some populist leader who is going to promise to call it like it is. And, and we don't want that. Well, not talking about it doesn't make it go away. We've seen that with no. lots and lots of issues, that, that telling people don't talk about it doesn't mean they just forget about it. Of course not. You know, and, and you, know, you can be told until you know, you're blue in the face that, oh, this is good for you, this is good for you, this is good for you. If you disagree, well, you know what? You disagree. And there are things that people never come to agree on. Um, but I think in Canada we agree to talk and and debate, but we have to be careful. We have to be very careful, and I think in particular a prime minister. Uh, although I have to give him this. Um, what happened the other day in Quebec, there were two questions that the woman asked. First of all, the woman is a member of an extreme right-wing identity group called the Storm Alliance. They're not dangerous or anything, but, you know, they say awful things. Uh, the first question was about the money, right, that the provinces uh, mm-hmm. were asking for. Her second question was very distasteful. She asked repeatedly, what are you going to do about native-born Canadians or Quebecois in that right. instance? Uh, you know, the expression here is the souche. The souche uh, is supposed to be a neutral expression that describes... Uh, people who are descendants of French settlers, right? Like sure. you, for example. Yep, yep. Um, but if you ask it in that respect, in that way, that, you know, what are you going to do about, the, you know, native-born? What are you going to do about native-born? I'm sorry, that has an intolerant and a racist overtone to it. I, I, I think that, you know, I, I might have lost my temper, too, <laughs> if I had been facing that. It was a very distasteful thing to say. Yeah, and, but again, and... she's allowed to say it. I mean, we... It's a free country, right? Free expression, free... Well, and certainly, I, I think most people would agree with your second point, for sure, with her, with your comment on the second one. The comment that he made, though, initially was after the first one, after the first comment. He didn't know who she was at that point. No, and that's he didn't the, know. No. So if he had known who she was, and if she had said that second thing, I don't think we'd be even having this discussion, because you would say, good for him for shutting her down on that particular point. But this was on the general immigration thing. So... Here's where we only have a minute or two left. Here's where things get interesting because there's a new Angus Reid poll that is out about immigration. It was either yesterday or today it came out saying half of Canadians want immigration levels lowered next year. Not because I don't think half of Canadians are naturally racist. They have concerns about the way things are being done. But the discussion that we seem to be having would suggest that that 50% of Canadians, I think it's 49%, are all racists. And I don't know, is that, a, is that a conclusion that we can jump to based on what's happened this week? I don't think so. Not at all. I don't think we should. Uh, we're nowhere near that. Uh, I think people have concerns. They have concerns. 
about integration. They are asking, you know, why is it that some people don't, you know, adopt Canadian ways uh, as soon as they arrive here and, you know, the whole integration thing. Yes, there are concerns at that level. Um, but I don't believe for a moment that Canadians are opposed to immigration on the issue of race. Not at all. Lise Raver, you can read her piece. It's, at, it's online. You can find it in the Montreal Gazette. It's not racist to question multiculturalism in Canada. It's a very, very interesting read. Lise, I really appreciate you taking the time today with us. This is my pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Will because uh, every week we do something around here where I bring together... I collate a number of the oddest stories from around the world, and we have what's called Will's Story of the Day. I'm going to give you the sense of what these stories are, and at the end of it, Will will decide which one is his story of the day. Will is the man on the other side of the glass who is a week into his very professional-looking new hairdo, <laughs> still holding its form. It's very nice. It still looks professional Still looks you? very professional. Okay, uh, he's the guy who presses the buttons and answers the phones and makes everything work. So here is... Will's story of the week. Here are your three options. Our first one comes from Montgomery, Alabama, where uh, the Montgomery Biscuits are a minor league baseball team. Now, if you know anything about minor league baseball in recent years, it's a lot of there's a lot of competition for the entertainment dollar for people in the world these days. Mm-hmm. You can stay at home and watch Netflix. You can go to a bar. You can go to a show, whatever. So minor league baseball teams have resorted to some very, very clever, fun Promotions. Uh, the one in uh, uh, in New York, one of the ones in um, what's it, Coney Island, has had the uh, Seinfeld night every yes. year where they do so. Anyway, lots of things. Well, the Montgomery Biscuits, which is a great name, by the way, is hosting Millennial Night this week. <laughs> what is Millennial Night? Well, at the ballpark, there will be avocado burgers, <laughs> selfie stations. There will be a napping area. No. Everybody gets a participation ribbon um, and there will be craft beer and safe spaces and on and on. Uh, this has been met with outrage by many oh, millennials, which <laughs> proves exactly what they're having some fun with here that, you know, you, anyway. I, yeah. I can see a, a couple things in there. I can see I get fed up with things as well. But I feel like a millennial organized this. This sounds like it a is. self-parody. It is. And yet, as I say, some of the millennials have missed the point exactly. And their safe space has been violated. And therefore, they have out, there's been Twitter outrage. I have to point out, though, I feel like every generation has its amount of oh, people they do. who would miss this. Point. Oh, this they, is, if we did Boomer Night, we would have the same thing. Uh, uh, 100%. No, 100%. But anyway, Millennial Night is, uh, is this week. So you can have your selfie station and everything else. So there's story number one. Story number two comes to us from Michigan. Don't know where in Michigan. Somewhere in Michigan. Uh, just I, I only have to read you the lead to this story, oh and it pretty much covers everything. Two sets of 24-year-old identical twins who had their first date together and became engaged at the same time will get married on the same day before living together in a two-bedroom apartment. <laughs> Well, that's either a setup for a great sitcom or some Batman villains. I, y- yes, and I was thinking the sitcom, the Batman thing could work. Identical twins Chrissy and Cassie Bevier oh, man. <laughs> will marry Zach and Nick Lewin. 
Oh, oh, how come Zach? They're not. I guess you can't rhyme any. Zach and Hack. Zach, Zach, Zach and, and Mac. Hack. Zach and Mac. It could have been Nick and Mick Lewin. Nick and Mick or Zach and Mac. Zach and Mac. That's good. Yeah, with uh, Chrissy and Cassie. It's. Uh, I don't know how. <laughs> so see, here's my thought on this one. There is one of the twins. One of the sets of twins truly was attracted to the other and fell in love. The other half. <laughs> felt compelled somehow that they were supposed to do this. So there's one happy couple here and one being dragged along for the sake of the storyline. And I don't know which one is which. I don't know if it's Cassie or Chrissy who is happy and the other is just going, we just got to get that stupid sitcom contract and then I can get rid of this guy. But (laughs) anyway, identical twins met the same day, had their same first date together, became engaged on the same day, are being married on the same day and will live together. What I want to know is, because they're identical, does this mean that their babies will all look the same? How many babies are they each going to have? Well, That's I, my question. Okay, is, but, they're going to have... But let's say yeah. they each had two babies. Will their babies all look the same? There's got to be some biologist or someone out there who can answer that question. I don't know. But it seems to me that when you do this, yeah. you're propagating a clone-like... <laughs> Species. Anyway, so uh, number three, because we're very short on time. Number three, uh, this is about weirdness in the, there's elections going on, like municipal elections in areas of Florida right now. Yeah. Yeah. There are many, many weird things, but the weirdest by far was a report from the Hollandale Beach area. There is a election for city commissioner job. And uh, one of the candidates accused the other of never holding a real job in her life, to which she responded, I did hold a real job. I was a professional sphincter bleacher. And I'm thinking, (laughs) first of all, that's a thing. Second of all, would it not be better just to go along with you've never held a real job rather than saying my job was bleaching somebody's sphincter? I don't know. That might really qualify you for dealing with politicians. Ba-boom! <laughs> there, yes. We're out of time. Which one of the three? Oh, man. The marrying twins, the outraged millennials, or the bleached sphincters would be your story of uh, the day. The, the bleached sphincters. <laughs> because of how qui- how quickly did she spurt that out and how quickly did she regret saying that? That's my question. <laughs> it's very. It's a challenging world we live in, isn't it? I did not know that was an actual career. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Thursday, when the Hamilton Ticats play, the latest inductee, I believe it's number 23, will be going up on the Wall of Honor at Tim Hortons Field. First one in a while. And boy, one of the, in the modern era anyway, one of the guys you said, how has he not been up there before now? Because one of the great players in most of our lifetimes anyway, depending on what age you are, one of the great players who... Brought a great cup to Hamilton. Uh, did a lot in Hamilton. He joins me now, Joe Montford. Joe, congratulations on this. This is a big deal. It's a huge deal, Scott. A huge deal. Before we get into all that stuff, because i got a lot of stuff I want to ask you. we got a few minutes with you. i got a lot of stuff I want to ask you. The first thing I have to check in, are the biceps today, long after you finish playing, are the biceps still like they were? Are they holding up? You had the best, the biggest biceps. arms in the CFL. <laughs> are they still there? The biceps are holding up. Oh, that's good news. <laughs> that's good news. Your biceps were bigger than my waist when you were playing. I don't know how they're doing these days, but um, 
Were they natural? Like, were you always the biggest kid in your high school and in your elementary school? Were you always a big, stocky, strong kid? Uh, it's funny that you say that. We we've been talking in the car about jeans, and and uh, my son, my youngest son, said I have jeans. <laughs> so uh, we 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 we, um, we also uh, you know, we always joke about. I know a guy sitting in the airport said that we, you know you got some big old guns there, man. Don't let them get too much bigger. <laughs> so you're you're keeping working out. You're staying shape. You're staying in shape. You're ready for your comeback, is what you're saying. Oh, uh, uh, well, no. Uh, <laughs> I, won't, I won't say that. <laughs> uh, you know what? I am keeping in shape. Well, you know, it's good. And, and last time I saw you, you looked like you could play. It was a few years ago, but uh, you have kept up. Uh, a few years ago, uh, the CFL, there was a, a poll that was done. You heard about this. They named you the 40th greatest player in CFL history overall, all eras. Did they get that one right, or should you have been higher on that list? player thinks they should be higher. Uh, I always kid uh, Mel Stegall, who's one of my good friends, who is also on that, 40, that that list, and he's way down there, so he always talks a little bit of junk to me about <laughs> not being able to come down where he is. Many people may not remember this because they always remember you as a Hamilton Ticat. I know you played for Toronto for a bit, and I know you played for Edmonton for a bit, but many people don't remember that you actually started your CFL career as a member of the Shreveport Pirates. What was it like playing on the Shreveport Pirates? Uh, well, you know, it's kind of interesting. It's so funny that um, I actually got to play with someone that played up here as well in, in Johnny Scott, who... Uh, wanted to play football, and he actually just drove up there because he lived down south and, and just drove up one year, and we've been been friends ever since. So um, it was a little different, though. Uh, they take it a little bit uh, serious up here because of the Canadian-born um, players. So, Did people in Shreveport, when you were you joined there in 95, and I think you played, what, four games that first year? Yeah. Did they? What did they think of the CFL? Do you remember what it what it was seen as when it got started down there? Uh, I think the game they enjoyed it. Um, uh, I, on the other hand, had to get used to it because the first time we played um, uh, a little special teams, they punted the ball, and I went to kind of go back to kind of cover the, the kick, and then they kicked it back. I thought that was kind of funny. You're thinking somebody's just had a stroke and they're, they don't know what's going on here on the well, field. Well, you know what? I just stopped playing and Coach kind of got on me like, keep playing. I was like, but he kicked the ball back. <laughs> I didn't understand. It. You hadn't seen that one before in your college career. I hadn't seen that yet, no. One of the amazing things is you, many people, again, will remember you came up here, you became very famous, you became very well known, you were a great player here. But there was a guy on your team back there, and I don't even know if you remember this guy, but there was a guy on the team who became even way more famous than you because he went on to wrestle in the WWF as one of the Legion of Doom, John Heider- Heiderich. Remember him? I don't remember John. Oh, uh, man. You he- know, I, I remember it was right at the time when um, The Rock kind of left the CFL because he got cut in Calgary, and we got to see, they were doing a lot of events up here, so we did get to see him walk through the airport along with his crew. See, I always thought you would have been a great wrestler, great professional wrestler. Well, you know what? I did get a chance to, uh, when they had the, um, I think the, um, what's the guy, John Cena. Oh, yeah. And uh, they were they were down there, so I got a chance to see him. And Tim, Tim uh, Cheekwood was a big, big um, wrestling fan, so uh, he really enjoyed it. 
because there was another defensive end for the Ticats who did pretty well in the world of wrestling before your time, Angelo. Angelo Mosca was huge in wrestling. Yeah. I thought maybe he would have dragged you into it. Well, you know what, man? Ange used to sit down and talk a lot, you know, and have breakfast because he was a Hamilton all-time great, and I, I just love listening to uh, some of the stories he would tell because he he told stories back when him and Andre the Giant was uh, going out on tour. <laughs> I bet those were some pretty good <laughs> stories. I that's not good for the air. The radio <laughs> <airway>. <laughs> I, I bet those are good stories, though. Uh, okay, so you get the, the the Shreveport Pirates eventually fold after 95, and you get claimed by Hamilton. What did you know about Hamilton when you heard that you'd been picked up by the Ticats? Uh, absolutely nothing. I um, Personally, I was like, you know, how much cold weather gear could I possibly find? <laughs> Is, that was pretty much it? You was up north and that was it? That was it. That was it. So, uh, But when I got up here, it was interesting. It was... Uh, a, a wonderful town with wonderful people. The team was not great when you arrived. It became really good pretty quickly, but when you first got here, it was a bit of a rough go. I think you had a two-win season or, or something like that your second year, didn't you? I've had a two-win season and a one-win season, and I can tell you, that was a tough time. <laughs> well, especially if you're a good player, because they weren't. those weren't two-and-one-win seasons because of you. You're You're there and you're dealing with it, but I, I imagine they were tough times. Well, when you're losing, I don't know if anybody thought they were good players. <laughs> yeah, I guess just, so. Like, trying to figure out how to get a win. You started as a linebacker, didn't you, in the CFL? Yes, sir. Started as a linebacker, and uh, Coach Suzy, uh told me, uh, well, you either move or you can actually pack your bag. So <laughs> did, I decided to move on to another position. Did you think, though, because I mean, you became a great defensive end, but did you think you could play that position when he told you to move? Well, the funny thing is, I thought I was going to, you know, when he said it, I had already made an all-star team, and I was like, gosh, there's some stiff competition up here. <laughs> so I didn't know, I didn't, you know, the good thing about it, we have great teammates, and I was able to take a lot of stuff from each teammate that was, you know, willing to teach me whatever, and I just absorbed it. Were you, now I don't remember, it was a little, uh, maybe I've just forgotten, maybe it was before I was paying that close attention to you, but were you... Did you figure out defensive end immediately? Were you great at it right off the bat, or did it take a while to figure that position out? Well, I wasn't great. Um, I think I finished my first year with about nine sacks, which was, I guess you can say, pretty good, but not great. Um, I think the lead was, I think the big guy in the league at the time was uh, Jernigan and uh, Afro Payton. Um, I just kind of figured I wanted to be like those guys. Well, you figured it out because it was a, just a few years later that you had, and uh, people are going to be have their minds blown because we don't see these numbers, I don't think, anymore in the CFL. There was one year you finished with 26 and a half sacks. That's, a, that's an incredible number. It is, actually 26. And the, the, the half sack came by, uh, I think it's Quick Parker who had the record. I tried to get it and uh, got kicked out of one game uh, the second to the last of the season. So you would have had the record had you not been kicked out. I would have, along with a lot, a lot of fourth uh, quarterback fumble the ball, and back then they didn't give the um, the actual sack when the quarterback fumble the ball. I know at times I was like, if we were up and the quarterback fumbled, I was trying to stuff it back into his body versus take the fumble. <laughs> you didn't even get defensive player of the year though that year, right? I didn't. My good friend Calvin Tiggle 
actually got the award, um, he had a great season, um, and I had a great season, so I wasn't sad about it. Um, I, 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 you know, I was the first person in the history of football to average over twenty sacks in four seasons, so um, I was kind of happy with that. Well, yeah, and I, I but I got to tell you that if anybody today got twenty six and a half sacks or twenty six sacks in a season, I would put every dime that I've ever made on a bet that they win Defensive Player of the Year. Well, I think Calvin had a great season. And one of those things was like, um, you know, the LeBron James syndrome. You know, LeBron can pretty much win the MVP every year, but you know, um, it gets tough on LeBron and Michael Jordan. I'm not saying I'm a LeBron <laughs> or Michael Jordan. No, no, I know, I know what you're saying. I understand, but that was the year. That was '99, right? That was the last year the Ty Cats won mm-hmm. the Grey Cup. Yeah, yeah. I had I ended up winning it three years straight. Let me stop there for one second with it being 99. Can you believe it's? It must be stunning to someone like you who had such success here. Now, I mean, rough times too, but so many winning years with the Ticats. It must blow you away a little bit that it's been that long since they won a Grey Cup. That it was when you were playing back then. It's been a long time now. We have that is that 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 kind of blows my mind because I remember one at, at one point. We were we were really because the year before we had went and paid Calgary and we we lost right there at the end with a long field goal to um to to basically have the uh, Grey Cup two years back to back. So I remember Calgary had those great years and we had our great years and it was a battle. They won the year before in '98 and then we ended up in winning in '99. We kept saying, you know, Hamilton had won one every within the 10 year in the decade. So we wanted to make sure that we got it, got it, got it in that, that following year. You, uh, you mentioned one of the guys who was coaching you then, and you mentioned him already, uh, Don Southern. It's an interesting story because you're going up on the, the wall of honor this week, later this year, he, it was just announced this week that he is going to be going into the Hamilton sports hall of fame. Tell me about Don Southern. What was your relationship like with him? Oh, Coach Suzy was um, when I say um, a teacher, uh, you know, and a father figure. Um, he was just—he was so smart. And the great thing about Coach Suzy, he put his players in positions that could make them great, and he knew how to get the best out of each one of his players. And he taught them. And as you can see with Orlando there in Hamilton. You, and, and the things that he's done since he's been back in the CFL, along with uh, O'Shea and all of, all the players, the defensive players, he seemed like he always had a defensive player of the year or someone up there close. And you're saying you're giving at least part of the credit for that to the coach rather than just the players for their defensive player of the year honors? Oh, most definitely. I mean, one thing is to put you on the field, but then to make you flourish or, or have you in position to flourish. I remember one game we played, and we always studied the top ten plays of the uh, of the opponent. And you could hear us rattle out the calls and rattle out the plays that they were going to run before, and they could swear that we were still in their playbook. So even the stuff today, can you can you remember today the stuff? It's a long time now. Can you remember certain plays from your career in Hamilton? If someone yelled it out, would you know what to do? I would definitely know what to do. And I remember one play, um, I think we were playing Winnipeg, and I was playing the left end, and we saw the play, and before the play was, I ran all the way to the other side waiting for the guy to do the reverse. 
<laughs> you you, you knew it was coming that far in advance. That far in advance. So when the play snapped, I was already running to the other side of the field. <laughs> when when that happens, and then I'm assuming you you crushed the play. I'm assuming you stuffed it and it didn't go anywhere. They didn't oh, get yeah, it off. We all in the backfield. All in the backfield. So when the when you're lying on top of the guy now, who's just tried to run this really creative, fantastic play that they're sure is going to catch you off guard, and you've just smushed him now. What do you say to the guy when he's lying on the ground? Well, they, they're, they're, they're wolfing at us. Man, y'all had our playbook, man. How y'all know our plays? <laughs> stuff like that. So, because uh, a lot of times it's players that we either we, we, they've been traded or moved. So we, we're still good friends off the field. But on the field, of course, we, uh, we're warriors. But, uh, yeah, they were always wolfing about we had their plays. Did you like to trash talk or were you a quiet guy on the field? Um, I was pretty, actually, I was pretty, I was pretty quiet. I, I laughed. I think, you know, the, the good thing about it, I know we go back and forth on Facebook with a couple of old linemen that, that I played against. Uh, we just, we just enjoyed the battle. You know, one game I wouldn't do as well. One game they were like, oh man, it's been a tough day at the office. You know, I, you mentioned the office. I want to bring this up because there's a, I mean, I, I mentioned Shreveport and I mentioned being a linebacker and some other things people may or may not remember, but there was a, thing that you did in the later years of your career in the off season that I think many people won't know about, but I, I, I thought it was remarkable and I thought it was fascinating. I wanted you to talk about it because you, you would spend part or most or a segment of your off season for a number of years working in a group home when you weren't playing football. Why did you do that? Well, I actually enjoyed it and to, and to kind of get an understanding of the type of kids that didn't have a lot, you know, that they was abused and uh, that the, the parents weren't around and they didn't have a lot of people to stand up for them. And to be able to go into places like that and encourage them to, you know, you know, under, have an understanding they do have a future. They are important. Um, I've always been drawn in uh, situations like that. Did, you know, I know in Hamilton, I think it was, uh, I think one in five lived in poverty in the country and three in, uh, one in three in Hamilton lived in poverty. So it was always, you know, things like that was close to my heart. Did that come from your own experience? I don't know what your background was. Did you, did you learn about being a, a man and being a father figure and all those things from someone in your life, from your father, or did you learn we have to give this because you went through some of that same stuff? No, I think, you know, I did come from a single parent home, but uh, we, we've always had, uh, I always had great people around me. Um, but, my mom was really strong and always being in the neighborhood and she would always either go to one thrift store and she would give our last that we had in our house just to help somebody else out. So, um, I think just seeing that and trying to get an understanding of, you know, who I was, was just by her seeing her go out and just give her last. Do you, those kind of things can make a huge impact on people. And I'm sure it did. I'm sure there were some of the kids that you dealt with that it, at that time and maybe later it has made a huge impact. I mean, do you ever keep up? Do you ever hear from any of the kids that you had dealt with at that group home? It's funny you say, I, not so many kids from the group home, but definitely some of the kids that, I, that I've been around, especially with the local high schools and things like that. I was in the store the other day uh, looking for some shoes, and one of the guys comes up and says, Coach Mumford, how you doing? And uh, just seeing this big smile and, and hearing him say, you know, I appreciate some of the words that you told me. And it's really helped me out and as I grow up as a man. So hearing those words was always good. 
I mean, it's, look, that's a pretty cool thing. I mean, it's great to be on the Wall of Honor and to have that football career, but, you know, there's something I would think pretty special about going beyond that and having an impact on someone's life, changing someone's life. Well, I kind of always said that, you know, when you're in Hamilton, it's more than just going out there and playing football. So I always would see guys just come in, put their, you know, have practice, go put their, uh, take their shower, put their clothes on and leave. And I was just one of those guys that, you know, waited outside, signed the autographs, went to, I didn't, I didn't drink, but still went in those bars and shook hands and sat around Tim Hortons and me and Miles Garrell going from, I think we had, one day, twenty-eight Tim Hortons that we had to visit, and just going in. Just, <laughs> and I was like, "They got twenty-eight Tim Hortons in the, in, in the city," and that's within like, one yeah, square kilometer. Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I mean, do you miss that as a player when that's gone? And I know you can still do it. You come up here, and there's going to be lots of people wanting a picture and lots of people wanting an autograph. But it's different when you're not playing. Do you miss that? Do people realize? I maybe I should ask: Do people who are playing right now? realize how much they'll miss it when that's gone uh i, I don't think so I, I i honestly i don't think so because some i don't see a lot of them taking the time out to to get to know people they see sometimes when you and i always say sometimes when you're from the state you kind of you know you're kind of stuck in a certain way and when you come to camp you come into hamilton especially um there there is not a there's not a lot of glamour around in the city and if you don't get to see the real glamour and that's the people and how they treat you, then they miss out on a whole lot. So yes, I definitely see them missing out on a lot. How do they treat you now? When you come back here, when you're here this week, how do you get treated when you're in Hamilton? Well, I always get treated well because I, you know, I don't necessarily, when I come back, I don't go and sit it in a box and stuff like that. I actually go and um, I may have the box, but I go down and, they may have tailgate, and I go grab some food off of this guy and grab some food <laughs> off that guy, and I might throw a little cornhole over there and do a little bit of this and that. So I, um, I'm always in the stands. But, Joe, the reason I ask the question is because we've seen how Mike O'Shea gets treated and how Morreale got treated. They played for the Argos as well, and that was the kiss of death. You played for the Argos. How have you been able to dodge the slings and arrows of the Ticat fans who somehow <laughs> forgive you for wearing the double blue? I, I don't know how I did it, but at the same time, I'm glad they still love me to death. Because I know wearing that double blue is is the uh, is the double double dagger. But at the same time, you know, I, I always go in and and I treat people how I want to be treated. And when you when you don't, you're not feeling snobby and you're not a certain way, and you're going up and giving them handshakes and some kind of way pop up on their page and Facebook and say happy birthday to their grandmother and out of the blue. And it's like, oh, Joe Mumford sent my grandmother a happy birthday. See, that'll do it. Because you and Pinball are the yeah. only two former Argos that I can see walking around and not getting abuse. And I don't know how, I say, I didn't know how you did it, so maybe this is a good answer for it, but you and Pinball can walk through the stadium. You could probably still wear your Argo sweater. I wouldn't advise it, but you probably could, and they would still love you. I won't do that. <laughs> I won't go that far. Hey, just, I, I can tell you one thing that Pinball got over anybody. He always remembers every person's name and where he met him. I don't know how he does it, but he does. He, he, you're absolutely right. You're right about that. Just before I let you go, I just want to ask you this. You're now... In the Canadian Football Hall of Fame, uh, as of Thursday, you'll be on the Ticats Wall of Honor. 
You are on the list as one of the all-time great, as we mentioned a moment ago, uh, CFL players. You are listed as one of, I think, the top 100 at your university at uh, South Carolina State. You're a great cup champion. Have you exhausted now all the possible honors that a guy can possibly get in his football career, or is there something still out there that you could be honored for down the road? I kind of want to be on either the MEAC Hall of Fame or the National College Football Hall of Fame. So um, kind of shooting for two more. All right. Well, there's time. You're, you're still a young man. There's still time for this. So we'll we'll be cheering for you, and we'll be watching on Thursday when your name goes up at halftime again onto the uh, the wall of honor. I think there's only 22 other men who have ever been put up there, so it is very, very exclusive company, uh, but absolutely worthy of being up there as well. Joe Montfort, really appreciate the time today. Congratulations. Man, I appreciate the call. That is uh, one of the all-time great Hamilton Tiger Cats who will be now put up on the uh, on the wall of honor, as he should be. As I say, I'm kind of surprised he wasn't up before now. Be that as it may, he is going up, and it is, uh, it is well-earned, and uh, I am sure that even if he wore his Toronto Argonaut jersey out onto midfield, which would be very brave, I'll get, <laughs> I would say that, but he would still get cheered. He's one of the probably the two guys that could actually do that and people would still cheer. That would be Joe Monford. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm going to bring Will in for this next segment because we're going to chat down, count down. There's an online poll that was done. People voted on this one. Of the topics of conversation that are the most annoying, presumably this is done as far as most annoying that someone else is launching the conversation and you're stuck listening to it. Because I'm thinking most people, if they launch the conversation, you would hope are not thinking, I got an idea. Let's annoy the crap out of people listening. (laughs) So I'm thinking this is to expand it. The most annoying topics to be stuck listening to. And let me tell you, just before we start in this, the worst case scenario I was at a party a number of years ago, and I'm trying to be very delicate with this. <laughs> the I'm standing kind of pinned into a corner, and somebody came in with his significant other who was visually impaired. Okay. And he then did this maneuver where he kind of introduced her to me and he then disappeared for an hour. So it wasn't that the conversation or the topic that she was necessarily talking about was annoying. Uh, It was a feeling of great guilt that while there were other people in the room, I mean, I talked to her for a long time because I thought, well, what do you do? You can't just walk away. Right? You can't just... She was a lovely woman. She couldn't... She had no vision. I can't just walk away and leave her standing there. But she was very engaged in the conversation. If you get where I'm going on this. There was no way to break off the conversation. Yeah. But I didn't know how... I'll, you I'll, found yourself in a Seinfeld predicament, I was, I was in a Seinfeld predicament, and I spent probably a good hour and 45 minutes in that conversation, the entirety of the party, and then, yes. But anyway, that's not, that's sort of, sort she, of there. She may have been fine with it. She might have just been like, all right, I'm going to go get some Cheetos from the snack bowl. Maybe. All right, but here are the most annoying 
See, that's an uncomfortable situation. Yeah, that's different. Here's an annoying... So let's just start with this. Well, top 20 most annoying topics. If someone raises this with you, you do not want to have this conversation. And take this as a lesson. Take this as a, a learning moment. If you launch a conversation with one of these topics, someone you're talking to is thinking this about you, whether they will tell you or not. Is is balsa wood number 20 on the list? Because no, someone once went on to me for 14 minutes about balsa wood. No, balsa I don't think balsa Well, we'll see if balsa we'll wood see. makes okay. it. We'll see, okay. Number 20 on the list, your job. <laughs> you go to a party. Now, again, in each of these circumstances, imagine you are at a party somewhere and you've met someone and you're having a conversation and this is the topic they bring up. I'm sure there are folks whose jobs are so fascinating that you could just sit there and listen to them talk. Uh, Chris Hadfield. If you were at a party with Chris Hadfield, I would listen to him talk about the International Space Station. Yeah. If I was talking to, I don't know, a professional athlete, perhaps, depending on who it was, I might be fascinated by their job. Joe Monford. Joe Monford. I could listen to Joe Monford for a long, long time. Um, even if their job was somehow repulsive in a fascinating way. <laughs> the a sewage ner- sucker? Well, a nurse, for example, who has a particularly difficult job. I, you know, if it's weird enough and gross enough, I would say, yeah, okay, I can, I may be a little weirded out, but yeah, that would be interesting to talk to. But, you know, having someone just talk about the nuances and drudgeries of their job and complaining about their workmates. I'm okay without listening to that for a long time. Make it interesting. Remember that line from, from planes, trains, and automobiles with John Candy and Steve Martin, where Steve Martin says to John Candy's character, he goes, here's a tip. If you're going to tell a story, make it have a point. (laughs) It's so much more interesting to the listener. Yes. Uh, Number 19 on the list. This would be for a parent, probably of a high school student, launching into a conversation about your honor roll student. Oh. How brilliant your child is. (laughs) Listen to me talk about how brilliant my child is. Now, we've all done it to some degree or another, but hopefully it's a drop it in and move on kind of conversation. Oh, by the way, my kid just got a scholarship. Leave it as a humble brag. How's your kid doing? Yeah. Well, that probably wouldn't be, unless you know, because you want to make sure that if you drop that one, that their kid didn't just fail out of school, <laughs> right? You got to pick your spots on this one. That could be the point though in some, Maybe. some friendships. <laughs> uh, number, uh, here we go. Number, that was uh, number 19. Number 18, your horrible ex. Yep. You know, unless the person knows your ex, hates your ex, has some familiarity with the background story, launching into a story about your failed relationship. Not so much. It doesn't, no, it usually makes you suspicious of the person who's saying all these things. Uh, Number 17, Facebook. Just griping about Facebook. Or any social media, probably, for that matter. Griping about social media, probably not. Uh, Number 16, I love this one because this is so postmodern This is so, I'm a better parent than you are thing. Now, we heard about the bragging about your kid with, you know, they're an honor roll. This goes back to the very beginning. Probably when you're pregnant, woman or man, if it's, if your significant other is expecting, how you plan 
or don't plan to breastfeed or plan or don't plan to have oh. your kid snippy snippied. No. <laughs> Talk about uncomfortable. You don't want to be having this discussion and you don't really want the person to be lording over you their belief, he or she, that they are somehow superior to you because they did breastfeed or didn't breastfeed or whatever. That, that's a bad one. Uh, here's what, now see this next one, number 15 in the list, depends what it is you're talking about, whether or not this is a bad, annoying topic, which is the show you're currently binge watching. Mm. If you find a connection with someone and you say, hey, Will, I'm watching this great show on Netflix. Yeah. And you say, what show is it, Scott? And I say, well, it's... Mindhunter. Mindhunter. And you go, oh, I love Mindhunter. Well, see, that's not annoying. Yeah. But if you say, I'm watching this new show on Netflix, say, what is it? You go, oh, well, it's this awesome show from the 1970s. It's got Norwegian sound or uh, <laughs> words across subtitles, subtitles on it. And it's all about the uh, early abstract Flemish painters of the millennium. You know, it's like, no, I don't want to hear about this obscure art house film series that you're watching. Scott, why didn't you tell me you didn't want to hear about it when I tried to tell you oh. about that show? Uh, number 14 in the list, uh, annoying topics that you might want to not talk about, griping about how all your friends are getting married except for you. Mm-hmm. See, that's not, that That just sounds sad. <laughs> it, if you bring this up, if this is the, if this is the conversation that you raise, it's sad. It kind of goes along with talking about how horrible your ex is. That could be. And that- uh, number 13, this one goes without saying these days, your politics. Number 12, your new phone. <laughs> okay. Unless again, you find someone who's a kindred spirit, who's really into their phone and wants to help you. That's, that's different. Number 11. Oh, this one's a good one. This one's a great one. Your new, or sorry, your fantasy football team, <laughs> who you've drafted onto your fantasy football. If you're talking to someone who's a, not in your fantasy league, even if they are, but B, not into fantasy sports, and you're talking about, oh, you know who I drafted this week? Tom Brady. I got Tom Brady. I'll give you a hint. They couldn't care less. In fact, there are about a billion things that they would be more interested in talking about than who you've got on your fantasy football team. Uh, Number 10, this goes back to an earlier one, specific parenting styles. Oh, we don't let our child sleep with us in bed. Or, well, we only do parental sleeping where we have our child nuzzled between us. I mean, whichever side of this one you want to take, oh, we don't feed them pablum. We grind our own food from organic vegetables. Timothy has to catch his own squirrels. (laughs) If you have a child that you actually call Timothy, (laughs) as opposed to Tim or Timmy. If If your child is under a year old and you refer to him as Timothy... I'll leave it there. Um, Number nine. This is a good one too. Nobody at any party wants to hear you launch a discussion about a juice cleanse you are undergoing. Ew. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's true. I'm on a cleanse. Oh yeah. What kind of cleanse? I don't care what kind of cleanse. Because you know what cleanse means, right? Yes. the, The end goal of a cleanse is not a cle- it's not cleansing well it's cleansing but it's it's not in a cleansing kind of way mentally i don't want to imagine your cleanse there's nothing about a cleanse that i want to be thinking about when i have a conversation with you because there's only 
a certain number of options for where the cleanse will occur. And none of them are places that I want to be thinking about, especially with what is coming out with the cleanse. There's no such thing as a clean cleanse. Just saying the cleanse should not be a party topic or a topic period anywhere. Uh, goes with number eight, kind of your specific health ailment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm really suffering. I've got this weird rash. <laughs> it's, it's kind of, it, I, you want to see it? No, I don't. Is this a cyst or a boil? <laughs> If, if any conversation you have with someone at a party involves the word boil, you're on the wrong track. Get off that track immediately. Scott, I need to interrupt. Please go ahead. What the best conversation starter I ever heard. Dude starts it. We're, there's an awkward lull. Dude starts with, I have this wart on my foot. <laughs> And we all There's nowhere to go that. from we, there. Yeah. There's nowhere to go from there. Okay, we got to move along here. Uh, number seven, how broke you are. Yeah, nobody wants to hear that. Uh, back to Facebook, how you got off Facebook and don't even oh. miss it. Yep. Again. Who cares? Uh, number five, any drama in your life. Don't want to hear it. Number four, this is a weird one, but I kind of get this. It, they've got it on the list that they voted for this. Number four as CrossFit, but basically just your new exercise regimen. Nobody wants to hear about what you're doing in your, unless again, you're talking with someone else who's really into exercise. But if you're in a new exercise regimen, you've dropped a few pounds, pick your spots of who you're talking to, right? If you're talking to someone, and again, I'm going to be delicate, who clearly is not spending a lot of time exercising, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, probably don't be telling them about spending a lot of time talking about your new exercise. Pick your person. If you walk up to someone and they're jacked and you can see they spend a lot of time at the gym, maybe this is something they'd be interested in having a discussion about. Possibly. Possibly. Maybe. Number top three, your top three things that are the most annoying conversation topics that people do that you want to avoid. Number three, your vegetarian diet. Or vegan, which there is no, look, no, I don't think anybody has a problem with someone being a vegetarian or a vegan. No. It's a healthy lifestyle. Some people are big into it. That's good. It's the, I am a superior person because I am vegan. That is what drives people nuts. Oh, I wouldn't touch that. That's just, that's cheese. You know what that's made from? Cow mucus. (laughs) No, I don't know. While I'm eating my brie on a cracker, I don't want to be thinking about cow mucus. I'm sorry. I don't keep it to yourself on that one. Enjoy your veganism. Knock yourself out. It's fine with me. I don't care. I'm fine with you being a vegan. I don't need to know from what part of the cow or any other animal. The thing is that I am presently eating. I just want to enjoy my non-vegan produce. Uh, Number two. It goes back to an early one, earlier one, but uh, this is for the parents whose children are very, very young, who truly believe, or at least tell everyone that their child is a genius. They're advanced. Oh, my, my child's only two, but we're already talking to an elementary school about starting him in grade six because he's really brilliant. He's so far ahead. Uh, that one. And uh, number one. Your gluten intolerance. Gluten. Got to be gluten. Most people have no idea what gluten is, but I'm intolerant. I can't have gluten. 
Uh, Jimmy Kimmel did this a few weeks ago. Oh, yeah? Went out on the street and asked people if they would eat gluten. Nobody, I guess it was in California, nobody in L.A. will eat gluten. What's gluten? Oh, I don't know. But I won't eat it. There's Do not start conversations about any of those things and you'll be fine. Uh, someone out there has a checklist that is full right now and they are seriously rethinking their life. Let's hope so. You helped them today, I, I hope we helped. I, I hope that this has been an instructional and educational segment to help people have better conversations and deeper friendships. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.